This morning, the Spokane paper had this lovely uh, editorial cartoon in it. I, I thought it was very befitting for what I wanted to talk about today. It's a picture of a window that says, Happy Holidays, and some terrible person threw a rock through the window, and around the rock was Merry Christmas. <laughs> and I thought, now here we go again, you know. It just never stops, does it? This morning, in your bulletin, there are the scripture passages. So you don't have to go through your Bibles and try to follow along, but they won't be on the screen. So you might want to open that and get the, the list of scripture passages. I actually have decided that the best way to deal with this whole Christmas thing is to just call it what it is, the 1225. <laughs> That's what this is. This is the 1225. Whatever it is, it doesn't make any difference. Because this doesn't offend my atheist friends. This doesn't offend my, offend my Muslim friends or my Jewish friends. This is a perfect greeting. You can say anything you want. Joyful 1225. Everybody's fine with that. Now we have uh, invented all kinds of ways to say this expression at this time of the year. We've got lots of different languages. Some of you speak some other languages and you all learned how to say this in another language. And you can get away with that pretty much in America because most people can't speak more than one language. So pretty safe with this one. I was really appreciative when we moved to Hungary and I learned how to say this 1225 in Hungarian. This is how you say it. Boldog Karanchant. Okay. And I thought, this is great. Nobody knows what that means anyway. So I spent uh, four years there telling everybody, Bulldog Karanchan. And then uh, towards the end of my time there, uh, a young lady who was a good friend of ours, who uh, was a Hungarian, came to me and she said, you know, she said, you know what those words mean? I said, I don't have a clue. I thought they meant Merry Christmas. She said, no, 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 they don't mean Merry Christmas. What do they mean? She said, well, I'm not really sure. She said, I, I think it's kind of a Slovakian derivation but she said it has to do with the coming of the winter solstice. And, now, and I said, wait, 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 what do you mean? She said, well, it's, it's the idea of the words are, we're really pleased because the winter solstice is ending, the shortest day of the year is going to be over, and pretty soon spring is coming. <laughs> now, in case you want to use this word after that, the winter solstice is tomorrow at 8.59 p.m. Well, that was the end of Bulldog Karanjant. You know, how can you wish somebody merry winter solstice? I went back to 1225. So that brings us to Merry Christmas. Now, Merry Christmas, this is a new word. It was a thousand years after the birth of Christ before anybody began to use these ideas of Merry Christmas. I mean, Christmas is about the Mass. It's about the Eucharist in the, in the Roman Church. And so to say Merry Christmas is like saying Merry remember the death of the Messiah. And you know that doesn't sound real good either. And then I'm often given pause because the pilgrims themselves when they came to America they refused to celebrate Christmas. They said we don't want to have anything to do with this day. So once and for all this morning, once and for all last time, well except until next year, we want to take care of this uh, 1225 issue by talking a little bit about what this is all about. This whole narrative, this whole story about the birth of Jesus begins with 400 years of silence. Do we all understand that? 
The Old Testament concludes with the book of Malachi, and Malachi, the last prophet, quietly says these things. Malachi 4.5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. And basically, the curtain closes, and for 400 years, no prophet from God spoke. There is no communication from God to Israel. It is silence. And then the silence is broken. Now, I know that we would like to think this is a big giant alarm clock that goes off everywhere around the world, and everybody knows, oh, silence is broken. It wasn't like that. Though most of you have a cell phone, I, I'm going to go on a crusade to get rid of all cell phones. Because <laughs> we have a cell phone. And you have to charge your cell phone. And we charge it at night. And periodically, my wife charges the cell phone in the bathroom that is next to our bedroom. And without fail, as it did this morning, at 5.49, beep, 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 beep we got a message. It's a quiet little message, but it, it, you know, it wakes you up. My wife said, are you getting up now? I said, I am not getting up now. <laughs> and you sort of can kind of go back to sleep, but you really can't go back to sleep because, you know, this is, it's, and then usually it does it another time before it ends. That's kind of what this is like. This silence is broken in some little part of the world that most people knew nothing about. This silence is broken among a people who are a minority of people. The silence is broken with some very simple little statements. It's not a big alarm clock. It's not a big explosion. It's something that just begins to grow and grow and grow and grow. So to find this narrative, to look at this story, we have to turn to these four men who wrote the narrative story, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now I gotta tell you up front, Mark says absolutely nothing about the birth of Jesus. Matthew says absolutely nothing about the birth of Jesus. John says absolutely nothing about the birth of Jesus. That's pretty good. Three out of the four don't even mention this. This is what Mark says. The silence is interrupted with this little beeping. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Now Mark actually is talking about John the Baptist, not talking about Jesus. He's talking about a forerunner who will come to announce the birth of a Messiah or the presence of a Messiah. Now you've got to ask some questions. I mean, if this birth is so important, why didn't Mark even mention it? Doesn't he know about it? Maybe he doesn't know about it. Maybe he didn't think it was important enough to mention Maybe we've made something out of something that really isn't very important to start with. It's amazing to me that Mark says nothing. 
Well, as we look at the narrative, at the story that continues, we go to the only gospel writer who tells us this story, and that is Luke. It's in Luke chapter 2. It's all of 38 verses. I counted them. There's about 700 words here. Pretty short story. And some of these 700 words are much after the birth of Jesus Christ. So let's see what Luke has to say. It begins with an announcement. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Now we all understand that Jesus is not a Hebrew name. His name is Yeshua. It means the deliverer. It means the rescuer. And I have no idea how popular a Jewish name that was back in those days. I don't know how many other people were named Jesus. Apparently it's pretty important because an angel from God tells Mary that's what you're supposed to name this child. Yeshua. He is someone very special. Now, i got to tell you the truth. I mean, if God wanted to send someone very special to earth to bring a message, you know, there were lots of choices to make. God constantly sent angels disguised as humans to do things. So he could have sent a Roman general. I mean, a Roman general would have had much more of a, of a proper place to present this new message that's coming. The silence could be broken with a Roman general sent by God. Or maybe an Olympic athlete. We would like that better. Let's send an Olympic athlete to break the silence. Why this? Why a baby? Why a baby indeed? Mark says nothing. Luke says it begins with a baby. Here's the story. It continues. Chapter 2, verse 6. It came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, She wrapped him in cloths, she laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. That's this beautiful Christmas manger scene. Do you all have a nativity scene at your house? How many of you have a nativity scene that you put up this year? That's what I thought. Who has the most nativity scenes at First Free Methodist Church? Who? Hundreds? See, they're arguing now to who has the most nativity scenes. I have a nativity scene that a cousin of mine made when we first got married. It's, you know, 60 years old, and she carefully did all these in ceramics. She painted them. Every year we roll them all up in tissue, pack them away. Next year we get it all up. I built a little little wooden thing, and we put them all in there, and the grandkids and the great-grandkids come, and they look, and they see the manger scene. It's a, it's a nice picture, isn't it? It's a nice picture. Did you, did you ever think about this thing? Mary is pregnant and she's going to have a baby any day now. And God, because of the government, forces her to take a donkey ride that's some considerable length of time. Would you like to do that, ladies? No. No. That's an awful thing. And then when you get where you're going, there is no Motel 6. There isn't even a house that says, well, hey, you can come and use the corner of a bedroom. There is nothing. And so they end up in a stable. 
Do you know what's in stables? Animals. Animals that stink. Animals that are dirty. We have sanitized this picture so much. And this is a picture of a big, dirty mess. And in the midst of this whole thing, there's no hospital, there's no midwife, she has a baby. Oh, I cannot imagine. That's how the story goes. Just because we've made it look good doesn't necessarily mean that the way it was. I've often tried to deal with this. You know, why would God start with a baby? And and I come up with all kinds of crazy ideas. You know, I've had 45 years of preparing Christmas messages, so I've come up with all the ideas that there are to come up with. This is the perfect innocence. Everyone is attractive to a baby. This is, there's, there's no pressure here. This is, there's no threat. This is a, a perfect thing for God to send a baby. Yeah, I don't think so. I think this narrative has to start with a baby because this has got to be the real thing. This is not angels acting. This is the first reality show. God said, nope, we got to do the whole thing. It's going to take a few years to get it done, but it's got to be from birth. And it's got to be a little messy because life is a little messy. And eventually it will all become evident. So Luke tells us about the baby. And in addition to this, Luke says the baby has to be identified. Listen to Luke chapter 1, verse 32. The angel says, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, this whole story about this birth, this messy place, this dirty birth, This is all about something that comes out of the Old Testament. This is about a king named David. And this is about a kingdom of Israel that was a theocratic kingdom. And all of that ended with Malachi when God went silent. So this is something new. Listen to 2 Samuel 7, verse 13, when David was to become king. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is what is said about that David back in the Old Testament who was a man after God's own heart. God said, I'll give him a kingdom throne that lasts forever. Listen to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. This whole thing is about the Davidic kingdom of God. And God said there will continue to be that Davidic kingdom forever and forever. And to get that job done, we're going to have a baby who is in the lineage of David. 
And so Luke provides for us the lineage, the genealogy, and Matthew provides for us the genealogy to show us that this baby comes from the family of King David. And this new king will live and reign forever. Now I gotta tell you this, see, my name is Ronald Kinsley Miller, and my mother is Alice A. Miller, and my father is Charles Lewis Miller. And that never means much to me, probably doesn't mean much to most of us. But once a year, once a year we had a family reunion. I still remember going to these family reunions. The only thing good about the family reunion was the sliding board that was there. It was at least 20 feet high. Best sliding board ever. But every year we had to go. Because at the end of our eating together, an old, old, gray-haired aunt brought out this big rolled piece of paper. And the big rolled piece of paper was unrolled and put out on the picnic tables underneath the pavilion. And the old gray-haired aunt would say, have there been any births added to the family? And the births were so noted for this past year. That was a genealogy. You know what that meant to me? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. But if you were Jewish, you knew what your genealogy was. Genealogy was extremely important to them. They rolled that scroll out, and that's why Matthew tells us the genealogy of this baby in this manger back to David, the king. It's why Luke gives us that genealogy back to the story of David, the king. Now, we got this put together. We have the 1225 narrative, the story. The silence is broken from 400 years. You get... Mark telling us that, well, something's going to happen. And then you get Luke and Matthew telling us that somehow there's going to be someone in this baby who is related back to King David that would qualify them to be on the throne of David forever and ever. The story begins to unfold. So let's go to John. John has nothing to say about the birth either. This is what John says, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that had come into being. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, and the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld His glory, Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Did you ever notice that? that John didn't have anything to say about a manger. John didn't have anything to say about a baby. James didn't, John didn't even have anything to say about a name, Jesus, Yeshua. Instead, he goes back to the pre-existence. The pre-existence? of this baby, to say that this baby that was born in the manger is actually God. 
Now look, friends, I got some Christian friends who choke on this. I got some, I mean, really good Christian friends who are very serious about their faith. But when you say that this Yeshua is God, well, the Son of God. But John said, God. And I don't understand that, and you don't understand that, and no one understands this. How can this be? There is a word that we use, it's called vet. We like to vet people. We do this in politics all the time. Can't run for president of the United States unless you're vetted. Can't run for any, almost anything unless you get vetted. Unless somebody says, you're qualified. You meet all the qualification tests to be who you are. You want to hear the qualification tests? A pre-existent one who God comes in the form of a little baby, who goes through this mess of a birth and continues to live in a pretty miserable place in the corner of the world with a lineage all the way back to David to fulfill every single one of the requirements that someone could be a king and a kingdom that would last forever. That's what Christmas is about. It is about a kingdom to come that will last forever. The silence is broken. The baby named Jesus. The baby is identified as God. The baby is vetted as the king of Israel and the king of the whole world. And this is the birth of the Lord God Almighty. Now, if this 1225 narrative is really true, so what? My uh, son, who's a, an academic, he's a college professor, he sent me a book several weeks ago called The Triumph of Faith. I got this book in the mail and I thought, well, this is, must be something he read recently and really impressed with it, wanted me to have it. So I read this book. It's brand new. It's a real interesting book. So a couple days ago, I called him on the phone and I said, hey, I finished the book. He said, what'd you think of it? And I said, well, Really interesting book. It's about how people all over the world are, are becoming more and more filled with faith, not secularism. I said, that's really interesting. He said, isn't that amazing? He said, I said, yeah. I said, what do you think of the book? I didn't read it. <laughs> he said, I sent it to you to read. I said, so, okay. So this is the way he says it is. That's interesting. What am I supposed to do with this? To which he said, I don't know. Well, the guy who wrote the book didn't know either. What are we supposed to do with a 1225 narrative that looks like this? Now, I know what we do with it. We debate it. See, we want to have debates about whether this baby was born in a manger that was a stable or a manger that was in a cave. We want to have debates about all these things. What are we supposed to do with this narrative and impossible, impossible story that broke the silence of 400 years? See, I think the key is found in just a little statement that is written by Matthew. 
Now, Matthew doesn't tell us anything about the birth of the baby. But he does tell us one more little statement. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now, of most interest to us, again, is the debate. Who were these wise men? What did they bring these gifts for? Is this just to supplement this escape route into Egypt to pay for their expenses? Where did these wise men come from? Did the wise men go back believing that Jesus was? We'd love to debate the story. And Matthew said, I'm only telling you this for one reason. And of course, we doubt that these wise men ever came to the manger scene. They got there much later. But he said, I'm only telling you this for one reason, that we might worship him. If this narrative goes by another year and there's no worship, I think we missed the point. What's worship? Maybe it involves singing songs. Maybe it involves giving money to people who need it. Maybe, maybe it involves all kinds of things, teaching and a Sunday school class, I don't know. I, I went back, I, I had a little fun. Here's the Webster Dictionary definition of worship from 1828. You ready for this? Worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. Oh, I like that. To worship God is to honor God extravagant love and extreme submission. The word worship means to bow down. Now we don't do that because we don't bow much to anything. If we let another Christmas go by and we don't worship, I suspect we may have missed the whole point. And maybe it's too late for this year anyway. This year, Christmas has competition. This. <laughs> Isn't that interesting that it came out Thursday, the week before Christmas? Isn't that interesting? How many of you have seen it? One. <laughs> Two. Okay. My 50, almost 50-year-old 50 son reminded me that in 1977, I took him to see, in Philadelphia, the first Star Wars. He said, there's not very many people around who've seen the first Star Wars. He went to see this Star Wars as well. He had four tickets for the opening night, but I didn't get invited. <laughs> and then my other son reminded me, yeah, I remember when you drove us from Henderson, Texas to Dallas, Texas to see another Star Wars. We went a hundred miles to see this movie. Oh yeah, I wish I could have forgotten that. There's an awful lot of stuff that goes on. Well, enough of this. Because 
This continues to be Christmas. And, and we got things to do today. So we, you know, we got to go home. We, we still have decorations to do. We still have, we still have packages to wrap. Some of us haven't even done any Christmas shopping yet. I mean, this is, this is serious stuff we still have to do. And especially, some of us don't have all of our lights up. My wife just said to me yesterday, you only have one string of lights up. We need to have more lights around the tree. So I thought I would read you from a favorite book of mine. These are the statements of the early church fathers. And this one is from Tertullian, from 197 AD, 200 years after the birth of Christ. And I, I thought, you know, I wonder if Tertullian saw that, what he would say. I got it right here. Here's what he said. On your day of gladness, we Christians neither cover our doorposts with wreaths, nor intrude upon the day with lamps. At the call of public festivities, you consider it a proper thing to decorate your house like some new brothel. <laughs> Boy, was he opinionated. Put that black screen up. I got a great idea. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get up really early Christmas morning. I hope the phone goes off at 3 in the morning. And I don't want to get up early to put gifts around a tree. I just want to get up and I just want to sit in the dark, in the quiet. And I want to worship God. Because this is the most unusual story that the whole world has ever heard. This is the living God who has come among us. And I want to take the time at Christmas to just, if just for a few minutes, I understand what it means to extravagantly love and extravagantly submit to the living God and Christ Jesus who becomes our Savior. Maybe that's the best ending to the Christmas story. Let's pray. Father, we gather at a season of the year like this to once more remember what you've said. Lots of questions pop into our minds. But one thing seems clear. You have called us to be a people who love you. Who love you with all of our heart and with all of our mind, with all of our soul. You've called us to be a people who love our neighbors, who love others, even as we love ourselves. May this Christmas truly be an expression of our love and submission to you. In your son's name, amen.